I'm Julie. I'm Kristen. I'm Kate. And welcome to Topical Island. Each week, one of us will deep dive into a topic that interests us. Have you ever wondered how to become a Disney princess? Is diva behavior acceptable? And what does it have to do with the opera? Will we get to work from home forever, ever? Join us as we answer these questions and more. As each week, we will take you to a different topical island. Hello, Julie. Hello, Kristen. And hello, Island Hoppers. Thanks for tuning in and being here this week. And uh, Kristen, what have you been up to? I just um, was just thinking about, I wonder how different our podcasts are based on what time of day we record. <laughs> We're right now on a mm. chill Sunday evening, 8 p.m. Uh, sometimes we record on a Sunday at 2 p.m. So I wonder how much different they are if you were to stack mm. each other. Yeah, that would be um, that would be interesting. I know some evenings there is wine involved, at least on my end. Those might sound a little different. <laughs> they... Yeah, so I've had a good week. I um, I, I don't. I think I said, mentioned on the podcast uh, that I have a new job, and I it's still going very well. Um, but I feel like I'm having that moment of change where you just kind of have to hang in there. You know, like. I was at my prior job for eight years and it was all very exciting. You know, you get away, get away from some of the things that you want changed and everyone's loving you and telling you how great you were when you leave and everyone's excited because you're new. And now I'm like really in my new job where it's like you have actual expectations and you're not you mm-hmm. no new shiny left. And yeah. I always think <laughs> like people who, um, you know, like when people like move to a new city and they like last a month and then they come home. Like, I feel like I'm in that phase where it's like, no, like change can be a thing and I need to get through it. And it's not that anything bad is happening. It's just like that, that uncertainty of it all. When like all the excitement kind of wears off. Do you know what I mean? The novelty yeah. has worn off exactly. and now, now it's all real. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's just, you have a different job. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I'm there. I, again, it's nothing that not that anything bad is happening. It's just especially going from being some for eight years and knowing all the ins and outs and then being like a new a new baby, learning everything for the first time, uh, not being the person that people ask questions to people have to you have to ask them questions. It's just it's a right. Mess. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting that's where I'm at. Well, hang in there. It sounds like you're very self-aware. You know to hang in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Awesome. Julie, what about you? Um, I've, I've been having a good week. Now, remind me, the last time we got together, was that pre or post Halloween? I think it was pre Halloween. It was the, because Halloween was on a Sunday and I believe we last recorded on a Friday. Okay. Yep, that's it. It was the Friday before Halloween. Well, um, it was my daughter's first ever true trick-or-treating experience so that was kind Aww. of the highlight of my week and um we met up with some old friends who live in um kind of a suburban neighborhood that that is what you think a suburban neighborhood should be where like everybody knows each other all the kids were trick-or-treating together all the parents were hanging out and just it was total chaos but in a very kind of safe feeling way and it was just really, really fun. Just so fun. Awesome. And what was her costume? Well, she ended up being a fairy for that night. Yes. Okay. She had multiple um, 
costume changes the days leading up to and post Halloween, but for actual trick-or-treating, she was a fairy and, uh, yeah, and had tons of fun and just was almost kind of had her mind blown by the fact that you could just kind of run around and there would just be candy. And of course, with COVID, so many people <laughs> choose to leave the candy out and the kids can right. just, mm-hmm. in her words, snatch the candy as much as they want. <laughs> it would be a little bit, um, I don't remember the, like there are pictures of me in costumes, certainly younger than I remember. I don't necessarily remember my first trick-or-treating experience, but it would be pretty mind-boggling yeah. to just, you know, you don't know. You, no, it's okay. We know you don't know any of these people. <laughs> you just go to their house and you will receive all the candy you want. I know. Yeah. And you keep going and going and going. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. And um, Kristen, I know you've mentioned that you really like Thanksgiving. I I really like Halloween because there's that there's no huge expectations, but people are incredibly generous. It's, it's really about fun in my to to me and the way we approach it anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I uh, I love it as a holiday. It's just awesome. it's just awesome. Yeah. Were you dressed up? No, I was. Well, I was a very and you know it was a huge missed opportunity because I'm very very pregnant. And I could have done like a, like a maybe zombie maybe baby. A, oh, which kind of baby? My friend, one time I went to a party and she did like a zombie baby. So she had her pregnant. I don't know if this is bad omen, but like she took apart like a baby doll and <laughs> bursting out of her belly. That is, oh, I think that'd be great. It was amazing. Like it was amazing. Alien style. Yeah. Something yeah, yeah, yeah. coming out of your belly or mm-hmm. at least a little pumpkin shirt <laughs> that I sweet. did none of that <laughs> endless I, opportunities yeah missed squandered and um <laughs> probably will not have that opportunity again but say la vie we had fun anyway uh now Kate I know you had a very busy and exciting week how are you this past week it was very busy um I was in Ontario visiting family. I took, so it was me and Tenley, my four and a half year old daughter. And um, I was extremely nervous leading up to the week because I was not sure how she was going to travel. And she couldn't have been better. It couldn't have gone smoother. Mm -hmm. She couldn't have been more patient and traveled more like a rock star. And so that was, you know, the big, my big anxiety um, leading up to it. And as soon as that was squashed, um, I had gone through every scenario in my head. And I knew that even if it was worst case travel scenario, it would all be worth it because we saw a ton of family, the majority of which had never met Tenley. And like I said, she's four and a half. So I haven't seen them in over, you know, five years. And um, it was just really really nice. My parents ended up being there. My sister came. um, And so lots of cousins. We went to my grandfather's farm, which is where I spent a lot of time in my summers Mm. um, throughout my youth. So it was uh, very nostalgic and um, cup filling. It was a very, yeah, my my soul feels a little bit recharged after coming home from that. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really great. 
Nice. But I'm very happy to be back. We took a little bit of a break um, on my break. I can't wait to find out where Kristen is taking us today. Yeah. I'm excited for this. I feel like this is a a fairly large topic that I really hope I do justice. But I'm going to talk today about the Hudson Bay Company. Oh, that is a big topic. The whole that that is a big topic. You're not even splicing it down. I feel like we could do an episode just on the blanket. Yeah. Well, exactly. No, I'm excited. I personally, you know, to to jump in Please. immediately. I am a huge. Uh, yeah, I do love the bay and the iconic stripes. Mm-hmm. And but I I realize that it is a little bit of a sordid history. So please tell us more about it. Yeah, because I am the same. I it's one of those topics, I think, where like, probably I've been told multiple times in social studies about it. And it didn't totally sink in. But and I and my other recollection is certainly now I think the bay has gone back a lot to the blanket. Like when you walk through, they have their whole kind of original line now. And also, I just remember being at um, the Glenbow Museum in Calgary, and they, I, in their old displays, they used to have like kind of like a settler's shack, and they always had like a Hudson's Bay blanket in it. Yes, but I don't remember the entire story. Julie, did you have anything you? The, uh, do you have any Hudson's Bay memories or thoughts? Well, in my family, there's certain. Gosh, I'm kind of terrible, but like to give somebody like a bay blanket, like as a wedding gift or a major anniversary gift is kind of like a, is a, is a thing. (laughs) And, um, like, so to me, I think of that as like a very, it's kind of a heritage item, right? Like, it's like, um, it's like giving somebody a really nice China. It's like a really high quality wool blanket and it's Mm -hmm. kind of a meaningful gift to me. Yeah. Those bay blankets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We got a bay blanket for our wedding. Okay, nice. From uh, some of Nick's I'm relatives, gonna... and it's I actively use it. It's wonderful. Okay. Nice. Well, um, I'm happy I do mention the bay. I do. I did do some research a little bit into the bay blanket, but the so the Hudson's Bay Company is 350 years old, which is maybe not a huge surprise to people, but it is. An incredibly important part of Cal- incredibly important part of Canadian history. Not only does it have roots in Canada's Métis population, but also it may be the greatest single reason why Western Canada is now not the Northwestern United States. Wow! Yeah. Really? And so I, I, I took a lot of information from a really fantastic article in Canadian Geographic. Called, called the untold history of story of Hudson's Bay Company. And then as well, there was a gentleman named Stephen Bone who has written a novel or a book called The Company, The Rise and Fall of Hudson's Bay Empire. And so those are, and that was written about in, I didn't read that directly. That was written about in McLean's magazine. So I just wanted to uh, throw those out there because um, that's where I got a lot of this information. There's tons of uh, heritage and history. And I mean, I still go to the Hudson's Bay quite regularly, like the the bay uh, in the malls. In October of 1666, two gentlemen who were from New France, which is an area that is now Canada, um, named Medard Chouard de Grossier, my amazing French, and Pierre Esprit Radisson. So they actually um, were brother-in-law voyagers, and they came to King Charles to tell him about the great store of beaver that they've discovered. 
west of France's imperial claims. Now, a question that might come to your mind, perhaps, is why are they going to King Charles of England if they're from New France? So I guess what happened was they were traveling um, a little bit west uh, and doing some exploring a little bit west of where they were living. And they they figured they found this area where there might be a really good opportunity for trade of beaver. They actually got in a lot of trouble from the governor of New France. So they took this idea to England um, to kind of float this idea past. And they actually thought it was a great idea. So um, Europeans were, as this article states, mad for beavers, not my words, (laughs) not just for pelts. So they, I'm sure we've all kind of heard like hats were a crucial status marker in Europe. Um, And I guess, and also... We don't talk about this a lot, but I guess they also have a a valuable secretion from their glands, which was thought to cure everything from dementia to gout. And I'm guessing considering, or at least dementia still exists, it probably, I don't know if it did, but anyways. So basically with Charles II, with his blessing or backing, they went back uh, to James, came back here, because I'm trying not to be like Canada, because it wasn't Canada, came back to the area. And they set up uh, James in James Bay Southern Shore, and they started trading Cree people, uh, indigenous people. And upon his return to England in October 1669, he confirmed what he had suspected, which was beaver is plenty. So this was a successful idea. They set up their situation, and uh, everyone's happy. So that was a really important confirmation in the establishment of HBC's charter. So. Um, they so Charles II then kind of start set up this charter for the Hudson's Bay Company. So in addition to fur, they were hoping that they would find other natural resources such as gold and silver. And in 1670, which is I think where this 350 year mark came from, they established this charter called the Governor and Company of Adventures of England trading into Hudson's Bay was the charter that they established. Basically, they were going to pursue this idea uh, of the fur trade, as well as perhaps these other natural resources. Was it one of the brothers-in-law, or do you think they had mentioned their their title charter, and they said, <laughs> we're going to have to tighten that up as a name? Not, not catchy. They brought in a marketer. <laughs> but the sad thing, and I think kind of the sordid thing that Kate might have been alluding to earlier, was that this charter actually claimed some 1.5 square kilometers of land inhibited by Inuit and First Nations communities. So Charles II did understand to some degree that he couldn't just claim land that didn't belong to him. However, um, they didn't see, they they reserved the idea of land ownership to other Europeans and ignoring indigenous inhabitants. And so what they wrote into the Mm. charter was that they would not claim uh, the subjects of any other Christian prince or state, in other words, another European power. So this charter that began the Hudson's Bay, well, Hudson's Bay Company, the longer name that I won't try to say again, um, just claims land that they, because other Europeans weren't already there, figured was okay. Um, And so Mm -hmm. it was called Rupert's Land in honor of his cousin, Prince Rupert. And I saw a couple different histories that he may have been more or less involved than Charles II, but he also served as the HBC, we'll we'll now call it HBC's first royal governor. 
Um, so by the mid 19th century, that was Rupert who was the first royal governor. Yeah, Prince Rupert. Yeah, and so by the mid 19th century, this encompassed large parts of modern day Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, none of it, Ontario and Quebec, as well as the Northwestern and Midwestern United States. So this was a huge area of land that they ended up claiming as HBC. So the basics of the fur trade were really simple. They had a fairly complex, uh, maybe more bureaucratic system. Each factory was commanded by a chief factor and his council of officers. But they built posts, which were staffed by English officials and mostly Scottish traders along the Hudson Bay. And so then they would have indigenous trappers come, give them the furs, and then they would exchange them for goods such as guns and wool. And the now iconic point blanket hmm. was one of such items bartered for, nice. for furs. Of course, then the furs were brought back to Europe and there was a, a standardized term of trade called the made beaver which was uh the currency uh stacked against like one kind of prime like a like a good uh prime beaver pelt uh and so that was kind of the name of the exchange so like a good beaver pelt would have an equivalent in in a certain amount of goods i'm all of a sudden i'm thinking about the antiques <laughs> road show and i'm so curious like what would an original hbc blanket from back then be worth oh today God. From like the from like 350 yeah, years ago, like from the very beginning. Yeah, I wonder if they know that. I wonder how <laughs> how yeah. old the one from the Glenbow was. Yeah, or if they just made, they could have just gone across the street and picked one yeah. up at the bay. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to say. I have to go back there after doing this reading to see if that that still exists or if I'm even remembering that <laughs> right. But. So the company gave the men who worked for it uh, the opportunity to kind of travel around and uh, helped the British to spread their trade practices and culture across the region. But they always did so, of course, having little knowledge of the area, they used indigenous guides. So I don't know, have you guys heard of a of a explorer called Samuel Hearn? No. He's apparently some kind of a famous explorer, but in 1877... 1770 he did two unsuccessful expeditions uh out of from the prince of wales fort in northern manitoba into lands that would become none of it in the northwest territories but he did so with the Diné chief matonabi who had actually saved him from an earlier expedition so um they were able to make it to the coastline they were hoping to find some of those resources that we had talked about earlier they did not but they did get to uh, a new area and um, that they would not have been able to do without the the help of the local indigenous. And although they did not accomplish what they hoped to, um, they claimed the coastline uh, for the HBC and they were learning so much about the area. And that was what they really valued uh, a lot from um, the indigenous people that they worked with. Um, but of course, as always happens, uh, they brought a lot of diseases with them, such as smallpox and tuberculosis, uh, which the Indigenous people had no immunity against. Right. Um, it actually served to wipe out, um, unfortunately, killed individuals, but also cultures and even entire communities, especially if elders, kind of similar to what we're experiencing today, you know, elders may be more susceptible to these types of things because they're just older. And so, of course, that was a really important part of their traditional knowledge in that. So 
Um, so that was kind of part of what um, was difficult for their communities and for culture. However, it was, again, as I mentioned, so important for them to, in terms of exploring and that. So they actually started giving vaccinations for smallpox to the indigenous population very shortly after it was invented in 1796. It's good, but it's also oh, wow. you know, possibly of benefit to the people who were living there. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. If they weren't getting all that, you know, navigation that they like and I, I mean I don't know what sort of compensation they were offering to folks who were willing to mm, be their point. guides in certain areas but I don't know I it might have been there might there have been, could have been some yeah. disadvantage it, it did sound say. I did see a quote earlier that both parties at some point felt as though they were getting a really good deal like both um HBC yeah yeah it felt like an equal, like an equal trade opportunity. Hmm. And to the point where they both, uh, there was a quote, I don't know if every single Indigenous group felt the same way, where both felt like, I'm getting the better deal in this. There was an actual mm. direction about that. I mean, if, I think as things went on, it probably changed quite a bit. But um, so they actually looked to French Canadian uh, traders who had been preceding them for more than uh, 50 years and uh, how they kind of work together with the indigenous cultures. And part of that, which is again, why we, I mentioned the Métis aspect was that um, part of the way that they worked closely and um, gained trust, I suppose, was to, was through marriage. So oh. uh, many of the individuals, uh, many of the traders um, were marrying indigenous women. Hmm. And so I think the interesting thing about it was that even though the, they were working in, in this area, in what's now Canada, the people who were running the show were still in London. Right. The, the men here were experiencing long winter, winters, supply shortages and starvation. So they were, you know, as you can imagine, people who were settlers or whatever in non, um, not established communities, I suppose, uh, are facing some pretty stark circumstances, whereas these people who are living uh, on the other side of the ocean are making these decisions. So they're not necessarily understanding the realities of the fur trade life from what they say 6,000 kilometers away. So they were hoping to marry Indigenous women. But uh, from London, they actually had an explicit ban on intimacy between HBC men and Indigenous women. However, as some of their local officers and governors uh, started to, they put in quotes, take Indigenous wives, um, they turned a blind eye on employees who did the same. And by the 18th century, the practice was widespread. And so that was, as I mentioned, in this situation, it wouldn't be quite the same because these were uh, Englishmen, but um, that idea was kind of the beginning of a distinct Métis culture. Um, and so it was interesting because some of the men didn't see it as the same as, let's say, a traditional marriage. So they felt like they could abuse their partners in various mm -hmm. ways. So um, the first, the 19th century governor of HBC I guess he ruled Rupert's land with an iron fist between 1820 and 1830. He fathered some 500 children. Oh my God. Nope. Five, 
five children. Five oh, children. Okay. okay. Five children with, <laughs> okay. Four, with four different women who he often passed off to someone else and was mm-hmm. very disrespectful about. It. So there was definitely okay. that going on. But there was also uh, evidence of men who had taken, again, <laughs> who had married Indigenous women and who had seen it as very much as their, that was their wife and their primary relationship. But the thing that was interesting as well was that, um, and sad, was that uh, until the early 19th century, HBC uh, had banned its contract employees from settling in Rupert's land after they stopped working for the company. So a lot of the men, once they stopped working, would go back to London, and they were also banned from taking their Indigenous wives with them. So it was a very uh, sad situation. However, like I said, there were some quotes about um, different men who had really... um, seen this as so for example dan fur trader daniel Harmon confided to his diary when he married his cree wife the union that has been formed between us has been cemented i believe he alluded that maybe he didn't feel that way in the beginning of his relationship um mm. we have wept together over the early departure of several children and especially of a beloved son we still have children living who are equally precious to us both so they actually were able to um retire to a town in vermont so they he stayed mm. but there, unfortunately, there was also the practice of, you know, when they were done, they would move back to London and who knows what would happen to their family. Leave their family behind. Right. That, and wow. that was the policy of the company. It was that you were not able to take your wife back with you. Wow. Really, Hudson Bay Company is the origins of the Métis, like the, the French and um, Indigenous. Mm-hmm. That is what Métis is, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... I- it's like be, you're half Indigenous, half French. Yeah, it's interesting because I didn't see... So, because I think most of HBC at that time was English. So they were talking about the fact that they paired with... They kind of learned from the French settlers who were there about how they would work with the Indigenous people and that that was a fairly common practice. However, um, HBC did combine with another company called the Northwest Company that was Montreal-based, and that eventually became Hudson's Bay Company. So I'm assuming that's how the Métis connection is made. Interesting. I never knew that. No. I didn't either. Unfortunately, as time went on, because um, they became, the HBC kind of learned their land, they had their posts set up, they actually became less and less reliant on Indigenous knowledge. And as I mentioned, that Simpson gentleman uh, from who... uh, was not respectful of his wives. He wrote that indigenous people must be ruled with a rod of iron and to bring and keep them in prosper state of subordination. And so he actually uh, brought over his British born cousin, Francis in 1830 to marry. And so then he kind of abandoned the idea gross. of marriage. He's, yeah. he's double gross. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so then um, other HBC men started marrying English and Scottish women and sort of ended Mm. a lot of that tradition. So back in London, this fur trade was making some men and a few women who held share in the company very, very rich. So from 1738 through to 1748, the company imports to England from Rupert's Land totaled more than 270,000 pounds, which was more than 31 million in today's currency. So wow. span of wow. 10 years. So it was quite a lucrative export. And it, I, 
find it interesting too that it was i mean of course everything back then back then was tied um back to england but um it was i, I just find it really interesting that still a lot of those decisions were being made in london um but by the mid 1800s profits in the fur trade had dropped so the settler population of canada the United States was growing, industrialization was spreading, and the future was not in fur, but in agriculture, railroads, oil, and gas. And so people in Britain were turning against the Hudson Bay Company. They saw them as a um, monopoly. And uh, they said it was by the time, according to the Times Company, it was the last great monopoly, which the improvidence and reckless favoritism of Charles II inflicted upon the commercial world. Hmm. Uh, many Brits were eager down Hudson Bay Company's monopoly and open the region to settlement. It was, so then, of course, in 1867, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Ontario, and Quebec confederated, creating the Dominion of Canada. And they were looking west to bring Western Canada into its fold. Wow. Yes. So it's huh. interesting. It's like, so there's this federation or this Dominion of Canada, and then this Rupert's land owned by the Hudson's Bay Company that makes up the rest of the west like everything else yeah. wow so we we all live in like hudson's bay what could have been hudson's bay company territory like yeah. if they could have just bought it which maybe yeah. at that time they felt like they could well hmm. exactly and so but it was what was interesting was there was some some um some fear that there was a challenge coming from the South, so from the Americans. So from as early as the American Revolution, the British and later Canadian governments feared American encroachment, as I kind of mentioned earlier about the Western Canada being the Northwestern piece of the United States of America. And so um, there was a Minnesota senator by the name of Alexander Ramsey who wanted to potentially, he, he put forth uh, an offer to the U.S. Congress uh, to propose paying the company $6 million for its land claims and um, that they could use that to construct a Pacific Railway and create three U.S. territories. Um, but fortunately, I suppose, so this is $6 million. He was proposing this $6 million offer to purchase this land. However, of course, Canada didn't really want that to happen. The U.S. also, I guess, respected some kind of pre-thought-of border. And so um, the British... Colonial Office pushed shareholders to accept 300,000 pounds for the land, uh, which the government of British, the British government loaned to Canada because Canada was a brand new country. It didn't have any money. Huh. So there was never like to buy the rest, to of, buy it. The rest of it. Huh. So this was, I mean, I don't think there was ever like an actual $6 million offer on the table <laughs> from the States, but um, you can see how the people in London are thinking, oh, we could get $6 million for our company or $300,000 possibly from this brand new country that, yeah. But of course, hmm. in, yeah. Well, I'm just like, you know, it's, we're still, we're still a constitutional monarchy. It's not like they were totally losing their foothold in Canada, right? Like they still, we're still a, a territory of sorts of of the Brits, so I could see why they kind of were willing to leave the six million on the table, knowing that they would still have some piece right. of the pie, so to speak. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, so they, um, so like the, they pushed them to accept the 300. I mean, I guess, but the shareholders might've been a little bit different than the government, but yeah, maybe. that's why we're not, um, we're not American. We're not American right now. Yeah. Huh. Um, but of course the, the, AL, the deal angered many indigenous nations. Cause if we think back to how this all began, how was it even necessarily Hudson Bay companies to sell? Yeah. And so in the acrimonious 1874 ceremony of the signing of treaty four, which covered large parts of Southern Saskatchewan, Chief Pasqua, as reported to have said to an HBC official, you told me you had sold land for for so much money, 300,000 pounds. We want that money. Fair enough. In Treaty 4, did they, was there ever a cash settlement? I'm not, so I haven't gone, I didn't go too much into the treaty aspect of it later. Yeah. um, Because I feel like that's, maybe that's a whole other that's a whole topic. other episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. But that's kind of where that's kind of the end I sent essentially of the Hudson's Bay Company's uh, part. That's where their the 1870 purchase of Rupert's Land is essentially where their part of the story with the land whole aspects of it right. kind of ends. Um, and then the history of modern Canada begins right there. Right. They helped establish an English presence because they founded trading posts, three of which became provincial capitals, Fort Gary in Winnipeg, Fort Edmonton, and Fort Victoria. So those were all started off as HBC trading posts. Um, and of course, as you know now, they in, by 1912, they started an, an aggressive modernization program. Their first six Hudson Bay Company department stores were in Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, Victoria, Saskatoon, and Winnipeg. They were actually a British company up until 1970. Oh, really? Yeah. And I, and I even saw readings that now it's not necessarily even a fully Canadian company, but I would need to look back on that. Mm-hmm. But it did become a Canadian company in 1970. So it was still under it was still british until 1970 so 300 on its 300th anniversary wow Wow. it's also interesting like i've never really thought about the fact that when you said those first six department stores were all kind of western department stores i'd never it's neat to know that the history is because it wasn't part of that original dominion we were the rupert's land so out west we it it's kind of where it started that's neat right yeah, exactly. I just am fascinated by, well, first, I mean, just how why, how the Hudson Bay Company, which is a department store that I used to walk through every day to go get my lunch at the, at the mall, uh, is such an important part of Canadian history. Yeah. That's amazing. Who we are today and why we are how we are today. Yeah. And that they continue to operate, like how many businesses have like that they like they still are pivot they still they still are making a go of it all these years later they do i mean i think they've been maybe at least very recently but probably a few times over the years in recent history that they've come very close to the brink yeah. um not being able to move forward with the you know shift to online online retail and and stuff but I do I do love to walk through a bay and I have to say that for the last maybe 10 years at least a couple of people on my Christmas 
gift list will get something Hudson Bay striped related mm-hmm. yeah. because I, mm-hmm. I do love it. I know. Yeah. It's so iconic. Mm-hmm. And for good reason, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. Kind of. <laughs> well, no, fair enough. But <laughs> there's a his, there's a deep history there. Yes. Whether, there not all positive, but very yes. deep and deep rooted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I want to read just like one of the last quotes uh, from one of the from the article, I believe that was from um, Canadian Geographic, which was the history of HBC is messy and complicated. It has moments of compassion, but also competition and contention. It's the history of global capitalism, North American colonialism and the British Empire. I think you did a great job of doing it justice. Well, yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> Because that's a, that's a big topic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I would encourage people to read, well, any of it. But I think like I, I, w- when I read the um, Canadian Geographic article, which was again, Untold Story Hudson's Bay Company, I was just like mind blowing. And it was a very interesting read and a very good read. No, I would love to. That's the, it, it, that just keeps coming up. I've actually been looking because I heard <clears throat> over at the beginning of the pandemic, there was, um, and I can't find the article. Um, so I'm going to be very, not, I'm not going to be very specific, but there were, I heard an interview on the radio with um, an Indigenous woman in Manitoba who had started a, uh, she's a fashion designer and she had started making coats out of um, the point blankets. And mm-hmm. so they were her own, her own style. And she definitely injected a bit of, you know, um, indigenous flair and, and uh, herself into them, but she ended up being extremely successful at a time that, you know, people were not trying to make a go of a, you know, starting up a business in the the middle of a Mm -hmm. pandemic. And I would, I would love to find it. Um, And if I do, I will pass it on. Yeah. um, Because I thought, oh, I would like one of those coats. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, that was a great topic. Oh, thanks. Julie, are you going to take us out on a high note? I would love to. I, um, so last week, our good news story, um, hopefully I'm not confusing my weeks, was we talked about um, Calgary's top 40 under 40. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so since that time, um, the Calgary Herald has posted a similar list, but this is the top seven over 70. Ooh. Oh, and so the top seven over 70 is um, just an acknowledgement that there's no barrier to achieving goals mm-hmm. and they nominate and there are seven over 70 winners who have done, who've had major contributions um, in Calgary and are, are truly amazing. And, you know, the things that they've done um, in their, in their later years. So not just when they're young and spry, the things they've mm-hmm. done to um, perhaps retired or semi-retired or not retired at all and continue to contribute in awesome ways. So I will definitely link the list in Calgary Herald, but there I will give you the brief descriptions of the seven winners. First off, we have Margaret Southern, 
who's a 90-year-old powerhouse businesswoman who changed the face of professional sport in Calgary. Mm-hmm. Oh. We have Shirali Saju, an 83-year-old entrepreneur who privately supports mortgages and business loans for new Canadians when the banks say no. Oh. I pardon my pardon my pronunciation. Mixikama Am. That elder Clarence Wolfleg, a 73-year-old residential school survivor and spiritual elder who is now sharing teaching, his teachings with thousands. We have Don Taylor, an 86-year-old self-made man who's now donating tens of millions of dollars to local educational, cultural, and environmental initiatives. Mm-hmm. We have Louis B. Hobson, a 77-year-old creative force who launched a myriad of the- theatrical initiatives, including a new rock musical. <laughs> Bonnie Kaplan, a 74-year-old scientist who's written a best-selling book and researched new pathways to treating mental health. And lastly, Murray McCann, an 82-year-old businessman and philanthropist who has forever changed the way we honor war veterans in Calgary. Mm. So... I encourage everybody to give the list a read. And I just thought it was, I just thought it was such a nice list to like, not only um, just to acknowledge those who continue to do great, um, great things for our community in, in the later years and to not stop and to not think just because you're not top 40 over 40, that there isn't room to grow and improve and and do amazing things. Um, And, you know, it really is a great reminder because I'm not going to, I won't lie when we were, you know, talk about the 40, the, you know, top 40 under 40. And I thought like me, I'd love to be on one of those lists, but what am I going to do now? (laughs) So there's still time. Okay. I'm going to, but I mean, it sounds like as you get older, there's, it's not like the top 70 under seven or over 70. So the competition gets <laughs> yeah, even yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's only but that's a very good, that's a very fun, good news story. That's great. That's awesome. Well, did you find what you were looking for? 